You're listening to Season 6 of Mobile Suit Breakdown, a weekly podcast covering the entirety of sci-fi mega-franchise Mobile Suit Gundam. For new fans, old fans, and not yet fans, we analyze all 43 years of Gundam, episode by episode and movie by movie, researching its influences, examining its themes, and discussing how each piece of the Gundam canon fits within the changing context in Japan and the world, from 1979 to today. This is episode 6.10, Gundam Must Die. And we are your hosts. I'm Tom, a lifelong Gundam fan, and when the legendary Gundam known only as Night Podcaster fell from the sky, it was split into two halves. One half is good, one half is evil, and I'll never tell you which half I am. And I'm Nina, new to this run of SD Gundam and distracted by trying to imagine an SD horse. Mobile Suit Breakdown is made possible by the support of 611 patrons and subscribers. Thank you all, and special thanks to our newest supporters, Nick S., Adam K., Ethan McI, and Joey L. And some belated thank yous to James F., Lucas G., and Engel Null for supporting us on Ko-fi. Listener support is what keeps the lights on and the Gundam takes flowing. If you enjoy this podcast, consider supporting us today by becoming a subscriber on Patreon, making a one-time payment on Ko-fi, buying us research materials from our wishlist, or reviewing us wherever you listen to podcasts. Links to all of the different ways to support us are on our website, gundampodcast.com support. This week we are covering the fourth and final episode of SD Gundam Gaiden, Hikari no Kishi, or The Warrior of Light. Episode 4 was released on March 21st, 1991. The creative team is largely the same, as is the voice cast, except for the noteworthy addition of Ikeda Masaru, joining as the Dark Emperor Zeon. He previously played General Revel in First Gundam, Titan's leader Jamatov Hyman in Zeta, Tuareg nationalist leader Gadeb Jassin in Double Zeta, and Neozeon moneyman Horst Harness in Shar's Counterattack. Now, Nina's recap. Ever since the Gundam Knight defeated Satan Gundam, he and his comrades have turned their attention to other threats, but it seems that Satan Gundam is not truly gone. In the aftermath of their battle, with lava flowing and ash raining down, the magic sword was flung through the air and landed a point down in the stone. Lightning struck the blade, a crack opened in the earth, and a baby version of the Satan Gundam clambered up and took the sword. Where has it been since then? We cannot know for certain, but glimpses of a roiling pool set into the floor of a dark stony room and canopied by looping wires and tubes may hold a clue. But at this moment, no one is thinking of hidden threats. With his new friends looking on, the Gundam Knight receives the honorary title of Versal Knight from the King of Lacroa. Outside, Elf Jim Sniper and martial artist Nemo train together in the sunshine and joyfully greet Amuro on his return curious about his traveling companions. 
Amaro introduces the Argus Knights to the Locroan court, and the Versal Knight, upon meeting other Gundams, cannot contain his questions. Sadly, the Argus Knights do not know him, and cannot tell him about his past. The heroic legend that he seems to fulfill is not unique to Lacroa or Argus, and there are those who share the Gundam bloodline in other lands as well. Princess Fra and Fairy Kika arrive, and suddenly harp music fills the air. The Alex takes out the Harp of Guidance, a Gundam clan heirloom, and finds that it is playing itself, something none of them have ever heard before. Only Kika is able to understand. She listens closely and declares that the harp is asking for help. It needs someone with a gentle spirit and a pure heart, and the whole room looks to Fra. Reluctantly, she takes up the harp and begins to strum it. Every Gundam in the room begins to glow and sparkle, then suddenly floats into the air, up and up, through the ceiling of the chamber and into the sky, where a gap, like a window to another world, has appeared. The rest of them can only watch and wait, while the Gundams face their final battle. The assorted Gundams sparkle back into corporeal form on a huge carved platform, with only a single guard who runs away terrified. But moments later, a mass of bat-winged, flying mobile suits approaches. So many, they blot out the sky. The Gundams don't try to defeat every enemy. Their goal is Zeon. They need only to clear a path so they can make it to the castle. The sole passage through the outer wall is aligned with towering mud golem mobile armors, forcing our heroes to dodge stomping feet and falling boulders. On the first floor of the tiered castle, they defeat a crowd of guards, and as each level is cleared of enemies, it transforms, seeming to wear away and decay in the blink of an eye. In Lacroa, the Hyakushiki appears, holding Sarasa's orb, the star of Rufoi. When lightning strikes the orb, its magic causes a ghostly Psycho Gundam to appear around the Hyakushiki, and the mysterious mobile suit is drawn up and into the portal to the other world. Meanwhile, the Gundams fight a parade of enemies. On one level, the enemy's magic causes the world to disappear, and they fight in an empty white void beset by shadows. When their magical weapons turn the tide of battle, the enemy sorcerer kills himself, causing the level to instantly deteriorate. Still, they press on, and the next level is guarded by the Big Zam and a group of Imperial Guards. Promising to hold them off, the Argus Knights urge the Versal Knight to continue up the tower, and he finally reaches the top, and the Satan Gundam. Caught in a beam from one of the Satan Gundam's bladed tails, the Versal Knight tries to convince his enemy to stand down. There must be some bigger reason why you were resurrected. Satan Gundam doesn't care, and is intent on destroying his opponent. Until Zeon appears. A massive, green, fleshy beast, all claws and teeth and spikes. The lower levels of the castle fall away completely, taking the Argus Knights with them. Zeon is intent on killing both the Versal Knight and Satan Gundam, but when he attacks, the two begin to glow brightly, and an arc of light connects them, seeming to protect them from harm. Then they combine, having always been two halves of a single entity, split apart when it came to this realm. The act of combining renders them overwhelmed or disoriented. The golden mobile suit they've become barely moves, stumbling under Zeon's attacks and unable to fight back. The Hyakushiki, Katshar in Hyakushiki armor, 
comes to the rescue. He can control the ghostly Psycho Gundam with the Star of Rufoi, and uses it to hold Zeon in place, trying to give the Gundam time to recover. Even those moments are not enough. With a burst of strength, Zeon lashes out, toppling part of a wall. Shar is pinned under a stone slab, and the Gundam is knocked off the edge of the tower and begins to fall. Only then does it finally awaken. Transforming as it falls through the air, it reaches full strength, flying back up and straight through Zeon's chest, defeating him instantly. In Lacroa, the skies return to normal, and across Sadrak, humans in mobile suits stare up at the sky as a shooting star seems to travel from Earth back into the heavens. The prophecy has been fulfilled, and the legendary hero is gone until he is needed again. Unfortunately, the big twist revelation of this episode that the Knight Gundam and Satan Gundam are actually two halves of the same unified whole superior dragon Gundam, which is the name for it. Um, <laughs> unfortunately, that was spoiled for me sometime in advance of us watching this. And I think consequently, that whole aspect of this episode fell kind of flat for me. As someone who wasn't spoiled, was the episode better with that revelation, with that twist actually being a twist? Hmm. Hard to say, since I can't have the experience of having it spoiled now. <laughs> My immediate reaction in the moment was, oh, the Dark Crystal. The what? Have you not seen the Dark Crystal movie? No, I watched it once, but it didn't make much of an impression. I think I was too old for it to be a formative experience. Okay, well... It turns out at the end of the Dark Crystal that the Skeksis and I forget the name of them, but the the Mystics, is that right? Who raise Gen? I don't remember any of the names, but the <laughs> big, good, wise guys and the Skeksis are in fact two halves of the same beings mm -hmm, mm -hmm. that were split in two when the crystal was broken. I see. And when the I crystal see. shard is reunited with the crystal itself, they are brought back together again. Mm -hmm. And I checked, the Dark Crystal came out in 82. Although I think the idea of one being being split into two, one good, one evil, um, I mean, that's hardly unique to the Dark Crystal. That's not even unique to Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde, which is the first thing that came to mind when I saw it. It's sort of like a classic mythic story or legend, if you will. Absolutely. But something about them being engulfed in light when it happens, which also happens in the Dark Crystal, uh, the setting in general felt reminiscent, uh, and the proximity. Mm -hmm. And the Dark Crystal just feels like the sort of thing that the creators of Gundam or animators in general would have been interested in. Well, I mean, the Jim Henson family. Oh, yeah, that's right. So... We know they were fans. <laughs> like I said, I don't remember the Dark Crystal super well, but I do remember the Gelflings. Mm -hmm. um, there were like only a couple of survivors of the like Gelfling species and that it was because the Gelflings were the only ones who could defeat the Skeksis. Uh, and, you know, we get that kind of here with the Gundam clan. There are only a handful of descendants of the Gundam clan and only Gundams 
can go into this other world to defeat Lord Emperor Demon Evil Zeon and save the world. This actually connects to something that confused me in the episode. They seem to be traveling to some kind of other world or other dimension, but then once they're there and fighting Zeon, Zeon says that they are the supreme ruler of Sadrak, that they are in charge of Sadrak. So are they still in Sadrak, but a different part of it? Or where are they exactly? I mean, they are in a parallel dimension, um, another world opposite the Sadrak world. So he rules multiple dimensions. He would like to. I see, I see. Before we completely leave the, what did you call it? Super Dragon Gundam legendary? Uh, su superior? Superior. The Superior Dragon the Gundam. Superior Dragon Sorry, Gundam. the Knight Superior Dragon. Oh my goodness. <laughs> Other benefits of that whole storyline in here. Mm -hmm. I'm a sucker for a good transformation sequence and the transformation from when it's just kind of a goldish Gundam thing falling from the tower and then suddenly it comes awake, it comes alive, it has eyes and detail and it looks so cool. <laughs> uh, and we couldn't have that transformation sequence without the combining of You're these right. two mobile right. suits. I liked the, um, I really liked the visual when they combine and it's this like very sketchy um, sort of blurring of the lines of the two characters um and then they like a bridge of light forms between them and that doesn't look great but the the way that they play with their outlines and and fuzz them before combining them i thought was really good i actually didn't mind the rainbow of light and there were a bunch of neat animation effects in this episode mm -hmm. animators working hard the other thing that having the satan gundam combine with our versal hero does is it means we have to reintroduce the Satan Gundam, which means we get the baby Satan Gundam, yes. which is one of the highlights of yes. the episode. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah. Everything is forgiven because of baby Satan Gundam. That the thing voice is acting and, and sound design and music when baby Satan is introduced <laughs> is so cute. All of it is so cute. And the way it struggles with the sword. It, just, oh. mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Oh. it also made me think of Pokemon, though, that this is like an earlier evolution of the <laughs> Satan Gundam. This is the baby version before it evolves. I think in the manga, they're actually like separate entities. And the baby Gundam is like the child of the Satan Gundam. And then they combine. But that was clearly not included in the show. Okay, so really important question. What inanimate object would you want to be combined in in the growth pool? Oh, hmm. Um, Since clearly Satan Gundam has combined with the sword. Yes, definitely um, sword coming out of its one of its tails. Um, gosh, okay. Um, limiting myself to um, items that have shown up in SD Gundam guidance so far. Oh, that makes it trickier. Well, I... I trickier than picking from the entire like universe of possible items i think this is easier um hmm i would combine with the harp so that i would always hang out with pretty girls <laughs> so that i would always hang out with pretty girls now good good hearted um, and <laughs> gentle <laughs> actually that sounds like not very much fun <laughs> <laughs> i think i would pick the orb the orb? The one Lala ponders? 
The one that Char uses to cloak himself uh, in a ghostly mobile armor and float through the air, and I don't even know what else. Seems very powerful. Yeah. And also pretty. It allows you to enter the dimension that's only available to Gundams and also to all of these evil mobile suits. Had we already had confirmation that Char was inside the Hyakushiki armor? Or was this the episode that did that? It's been too long. Like con confirmation confirmation? Or just like, it looks like him and it sounds like him? Confirmation confirmation. Then I think, yes. I think this is the confirmation. And did you notice that when they show him during the end credits, his cat ears are gone? The yes. curse has been broken. Which I... Personally, I thought that was a very nice touch of characterization for Char because it suggests, let's say, that uh, he was never actually interested in breaking the curse that had turned his sister into one of those slime monsters. He was actually always in it for his own sake, trying to break his own curse, which is just classic Char. What was the ghostly mobile suit that... Oh, that's the Psycho Gundam, okay. or in this case, Golem. That's what I thought, just... Uh, because there are mud golems that appear in the episode as well, I wasn't mm -hmm, sure. Mm -hmm. And I think it's that by cloaking himself in the spectral legendary giant, Shar is able to trick the security defense systems of this other world. Into thinking he is a Gundam. When he is not a Gundam. The Hyakushiki is not a Gundam. Quattro, he is not a Gundam. <laughs> Amuro, he is also not a Gundam. Poor Amuro. <laughs> yeah, poor us, the viewers, honestly. Like, this was kind of a weak episode, I thought, out of all of the four Gaidens. The weakest of the four, in my opinion. I wouldn't say it was the weakest for me, but it was, it was not great. And a big part of that, I think, is that, I'm sorry, the Gundams and the storyline about the legendary hero Gundam are the least interesting parts of Gaiden. The, um, the feuding Gundams in episode three, the Argus Knights, were really fun to watch, but once they got over their issues and started working together, they're just a team of like stoic, heroic, working together Gundams. There's nothing interesting there. So the fact that this episode just like spends three minutes on all the human characters and then teleports the Gundams to another world and all the humans can do is like watch a glowing light in the sky? Uncompelling. I was not compelled. It's unfortunate because some of the other mobile suit characters in Gaiden have so much more personality. Yeah. There's a reason that they typically give heroes sidekicks and a party because <laughs> typically you're classic heroic character is really boring. Yeah. And in this case, we've got, you know, five straight men forming a, a team and then Char shows up, but he doesn't get to do anything. He's there for like a minute. He means straight men in the comedy duo sense of like, they play it straight while other people are goofy. Yes. <laughs> Just to clarify, in case anyone's not familiar with that term, <laughs> we have no idea of the Gundam sexuality. No, no, it's not it is not stated evident. in the text. They must have some kind, because we know that a bunch of these Gundams are descendants of other Gundams. Yeah, for the uh, Harp of Guidance to be an heirloom, there have to be new generations to give it to? Which raises a lot of questions about Gundam biology in the <laughs> Gaiden world. The face I made when he said biology. I'm really wishing you all could have seen it. <laughs> 
Given what you said about the human characters and their place in the narrative, I'm curious whether you agree with me on one of my biggest complaints about this episode, which was that the cuts back to the humans in La Croa were bad, mostly. They broke mm. up the momentum of the story. They were uninteresting. Nothing compelling happened in them or furthered the story, really. It was just like, oh, hey, remember, we have these humans here watching the sky. They felt like filler, and they felt like they made the story as a whole worse. Hmm. I think it's instructive to compare them to the similar use of Mirai and Chaman in Char's counterattack. Oh gosh, not Char's counterattack, not again! Not, just, just, for, just for a second. Um, in Char's counterattack, they do repeatedly cut back to these other characters doing this other thing on Earth who are not directly involved in the goings-on of the story, except that they will be impacted by the outcome. And I will always go to bat for the importance of those scenes in Char's counterattack. So the question I have to ask is why does it work there and not here? Because I agree with you that it doesn't really work here. I think part of that is that not only do the human characters in Gaiden not have any impact on the outcome of the battle in the other world. They also just have nothing to do. Yeah. They're literally just standing there. That was going to be my first point. Mirai and Chaman are active within the possibilities available to them. Their circumstances are changing. And as they move through the world, it tells us things about what's happening on Earth. The humans in La Croa are standing on a parapet staring at the sky <laughs> every time we look at them. Mm -hmm. And this leaves interesting questions on the table, like how are the people of Argus going to respond to the fact that all of their most important leaders just went to another world and died? Because they're definitely dead. Amuro seems quite upset not to have been able to go and join in this epic final battle, and also that the Gundams have gone from the world and the rest of them are left behind and the king sort of comforts him saying that that was the path they chose and that was their duty but that everyone has a role to fulfill in the world. How disappointing for Amaro to be left behind to have to build something in the world instead of being able to die heroically in a great sacrifice that inspires others. And I can imagine a very interesting story that involves these kind of competing ideas, our idea of heroes and, okay, but what do heroes do after the big battle is over? <laughs> uh, yeah, they made Zeta Gundam. <laughs> and the, uh, the idea that everyone has a role to play in the world and all those roles have value even when we're not big, important people. But to shoehorn it in at the end of your last <laughs> episode just feels strange. And mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I want to say that the SD Gundam Gaiden series is suffering from not having enough time to develop these kind of ideas. But um, given the way the episodes have played out so far, I mean, every single one of them basically follows the same format and spends about half of its time with our heroes running to some kind of tower or fortress or ruin and then fighting their way up a set of stairs inside the tower or fortress or ruin, each one breaking off for some sort of thematically appropriate duel as the lead hero continues on to get to the final chamber and face the big bad. I mean, everyone, I mean, every single one has followed the same format and it doesn't leave a lot of room to develop ideas. So 
I'm not confident that they could have done anything, even if they had had more episodes. It also feels counter to the entire ethos of SD Gundam. If the whole point is, here is something cute and silly, why would you choose SD Gundam format to tell a serious philosophical story about heroic mythology? I mean, why in the SD Gundam format would you decide to do full-length episodes in a like mini serialized format? If they were funny and cute. <laughs> I mean, these are so bizarre. They're so different from what we've come to expect from SD Gundam, and yet they're not quite divorced enough from SD to be free of its problems, and yet not really, you know, taking advantage of the good parts of the SD formula. And we can speak to a formula for SD. I don't think we're sort of imposing that backwards based on its history. I think based on what we've already seen, there's a clear kind of story, kind of content that is part of SD Gundam. And it's not serious. <laughs> I do feel like Gaiden Episode 3 Knights of Argus was like it's up there among the better SD projects that we've watched so far, but it's an outlier within mm -hmm. the Gaiden universe. To go back quickly to the problem of the humans and their role in this episode, I think part of the issue has to be that the preceding episodes have not set up a sense of danger for them. What is the threat that Dark Emperor Zeon is actually imposing on the Sadrak world? Yes, there have been these various incidents, um, but at the end of each episode, each incident is neatly resolved through the power of the Gundams fighting in the world. There's no sense that this grand journey into the other dimension was necessary or that anybody even expected it was going to happen. They just showed up. The harp that they happened to be carrying started playing by itself. Where was he keeping that harp? Good question. I want to know. Follow-up question on that. Do these Gundams from Argus have children at home? Is there a next generation of Gundams who are going to be ready the next time this comes around? Did their Gundam children also get pulled back into the whatever other world? <laughs> This is maybe unfair. This is maybe expecting too much from Gaiden, but we're talking about what is basically a mythic cycle where every few generations, every few centuries, a new legendary hero descends into the Sadrak world and a new threat rises and and they have to go through these these heroic mythic motions using these artifacts. And if that's the case, then presumably this is going to happen again generations from now. But making it this kind of like clockwork mechanism where every artifact has its purpose and the Gundams were always destined to go and fight this final battle over in the other world raises a lot of questions like why can only Frabo play the harp? What is her like? Why is that her destiny? She's just so good. She's just the only one who showed up to the meeting dressed like she was going to play the harp. Yeah, I uh, I was thrown a little bit by that scene, mainly because her outfit feels vaguely Greco-Roman. That yeah, seems yeah. like what they were going for. And then they called him the Versal Knight, and I kept thinking Vestal, <laughs> which uh, Vestals were sacred virgins. Versal, in this context, is actually from Universal Century. Oh, so 
because I knew it wasn't Vestal, I looked it up. Versal is a real word in English. It's archaic, but it is a word and means universal. I was also irked that they gave Sela a new outfit. Her armor was great. It really feels like they just needed to put her in a skirt. They couldn't handle not having her in a skirt. In her armor, she was too strong. That's her best quality. Also, again, she has nothing to do in this episode. There's even a moment towards the end when King Revel is talking to Knight Amuro and they have to have Sela just like step out of the way. And what felt like a totally unnecessary flourish, animation-wise. Oh, when she curtsies? Yeah. And yeah. she, like, backs halfway out of the frame. Yep. Like, I know I'm not important to this scene, to this episode. One of my favorite parts of this episode is during that roundtable scene. Haha, <laughs> roundtable. I assume that was intentional. Oh, I'm sure. The Knights of a roundtable. And the various Gundam Knights start talking about... There may be others who share the same bloodline in other lands. And the Versal Knight says that he's not certain he belongs in this world. This is an isekai. <laughs> it is. It is. Actually, if you think back to the very first Gaiden episode, at the beginning, we see a ball of light descend into the Sadrak world. And at the end of episode four, we see the light ascend again. And if you remember back in episode one, the light like hits a wedge of like evil metal and gets split in half. I did not remember that. Uh huh. Mm hmm. It's mm -hmm. so our whole discussion about the Gundam clan and so on here in Sadrak World briefly made me wonder if perhaps all of the Gundams in Sadrak World were from somewhere else. But no, it's just that there is the Gundam bloodline they have blood apparently <laughs> are are present in a whole bunch of different worlds you were talking about how little sense of threat there is at this point that they really don't manage to establish why this fight needs to happen now in another fantasy series the lacroan people would be defending the walls of their town from an army and it's only through the actions of the Gundam Knights in this alternate dimension that they even have a chance of surviving. You and mean instead... like in the Wheel of Time TV show <laughs> that we covered on a different podcast? Yes. Or as I'm sure happens in many other fantasy series that events happening independently in different places are in fact interconnected and dependent on each other. That's just good storytelling. They make the barest effort of establishing threat by showing us shots of the growth pool. But I think... They could have cut the number of those shots in half or fewer. <laughs> they kept cutting back to it. You could have shown it once with like the tentacle coming out of it. And we would have been like, oh, dang. Something's growing in there. That looks dangerous. Also, the like even when he appears in his world, this Xeon monster does not really convey a sense of threat. Like, he's a big spiny guy, right? He's got some teeth and some spikes coming out of him, and he looks kind of like a, I don't know. I liked him better when he was the Xeon logo with eyeballs. <laughs> I thought that was a much better enemy design than yeah. just, like, thorny monster with big teeth and big claws. It takes the, like, the mystery and the majesty out to give him a corporeal form like that. Although I understand that in the manga, he's actually even less impressive because it turns out 
that he's not some like ancient cosmic evil. He's just um, a Zacrello cat that was overcome with resentment and just like became an evil monster. Well, like Nekomata, right? Exactly. But uh, I wish they had kept it. I'm sad they gave up on putting the Zacrello in every episode. Yeah. And the very end of the fight with Zeon is also anticlimactic. He makes a lot of threatening noises, but it never feels all that dangerous. And then the superior knight, no wait, superior knight, superior knight, dragon, knight, superior dragon. I'm never going to remember that. Uh, just flies right through him and punches a hole through him and that's it. Once the transformation sequence is done, it's over. It's just overwhelming power. Yeah, the Knight Superior Dragon is based on the design of the S Gundam, or Superior Gundam, from the serialized novel and photo book Gundam Sentinel. Although the uh, Versal Knight version of Knight Gundam was based on the Super Gundam from Zeta, which I can kind of see in the like design of the shoulders, but uh, there's a lot of distance between that inspiration and the design they came up with. There were other parts of the design for this episode that I liked very much, but I want to get some of my complaints out of the <laughs> way first. We get yet another really unnecessary Star of David. Yes, the summoning platform in the uh, the other world has the Star of David on it, which was so disappointing because earlier on when baby Satan shows up, they've got a different symbol on his chest. A different kind of star. It's eight-pointed, created by two overlapping four-pointed stars, which not only avoids that whole problem of taking a symbol widely acknowledged to be associated with Judaism and making it a symbol of evil, they've avoided that, um, and they've also managed to suggest the uh, nature of the relationship between the Night Gundam and the Satan Gundam because the Night Gundam has the single four-pointed star and so the two overlap suggest that anyway, it's good. <laughs> and then like 10 minutes later, they lose it again. And you know what makes that worse? What? Do you remember which mobile suit is guarding the Star of David teleporter? I do not. It's a Gaza. Ooh. Right? I mean, it's probably a coincidence. I hope it's a coincidence. It's bad. That's an unforced error. They just walked into that one. There's a fairly long shot of Lacroa from the air. And excuse me, but why would you put this like nice paved road all the way around your defensive walls? <laughs> why would you put your castle right up against one of the walls instead of in the middle? Why are there no towns, farms, homesteads, anything, anywhere near this village? Grumble, 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 grrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrr
I don't think they should have put a giant cross on the top of the Crowan Castle. Mm, yep. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. This isn't a complaint, more of a observation. The segmented tail swords of the Satan Gundam, uh, something like that is going to show up again in another Gundam in the future. And I kind of feel like SD is proving to be a testbed for a lot of mm. aesthetic choices that we are going to see again later. Don't you think it's funny seeing the little SD knights on regular proportioned horses? Yes. They should have put everybody on ponies. They should have made chonky horses. <laughs> oh, yeah. I loved in the third episode, Argus Knights, all of the horses are like flesh and blood horses, but their barding makes them look like the, the warships. Yeah. I really the, liked that. The barding is super cool, but how do these little SD characters even manage to mount a regular horse. Specialized saddles. They have to use their little verniers. They have to use their <laughs> jets to get up there. And they get a lot of use out of that one sparkle effect in this episode. They use the same sparkle effect over and over and over again. This is an episode with a lot of like showy animation tricks that they didn't have to do, but also a lot of shortcuts. Like, I can't be the only one who noticed that the Gundams don't have mouths, and so We'll just get these long shots of no movement at all as the Gundam is just on screen talking. On the other hand, a shortcut they used that was great was the white void, mm. which, of course, anachronistically now just reminds me of Janet's void from The Good Place. <laughs> it's a big white void. Clearly, but... The Good Place was inspired by Gundam <laughs> Gaiden. <laughs> But the animation of that scene on the characters of the fight and them having to fight these shadows and the weird blurring at the edges of them within this void was so cool. I liked the way as they ascended through the tower, like the lower portions of it dissolved into this freaky scaffolding. It sort of looked like very decayed stone, like it's been hollowed mm. out and worn away. I got kind of like a insect hive vibe from it. I did want to mention, while we're talking about the castle, that shape that it has before it starts to be damaged of being pagoda-like and tiered, but much wider at the bottom and almost smoothly sloping upwards into a pinnacle is a shape you see in a lot of Southeast Asian temples in their pagodas and stupas. I'm sure that was the inspiration, like visually. I suspect that on a more conceptual level, it's based on the Tower of Abawaku from the fake myth of Abawaku that Borges invented. Because in that, there is this whole like ascending through the tower towards like enlightenment at the top that they do here. It's not actually called the Tower of Abawaku, but it does kind of look like if you took Abawaku and flipped it upside down. The tower also provides us with a return to some classic video game tropes because whomst among us, having played an old JRPG, has not had the fight your way to the top of the tower to fight a boss yep. <laughs> moment. <laughs> fight your way to the top of the tower to fight a boss is also now a staple of the isekai genre. Thank you, Sword Art Online. And they introduced another fantasy class. We got a bard. Mm-hmm. Ooh, speaking of isekais, or a battler Dunbine, sometimes retroactively considered to be the first isekai and was directed by Tomino before Zeta Gundam, um, when the, I think it's the Queen Mansa shows up 
to uh, obstruct the Gundams on the stairs and somebody has to stay behind for a thematically appropriate duel. The Gaiden design of it is absolutely phenomenal, but really makes me think of the like bug bots, the aura battlers from mm. Aura Battler Dunbine. Also looking good in this episode, the Gaplant has been redone as a kind of flying monkey enemy. I'm so glad I'm not the only one who thought that that cloud of flying enemies was like the flying monkeys. Not from Wizard of Oz, but from Return to Oz, notably horrifying <laughs> sequel <laughs> that came out in 85. Mm. And I was reading about it. It flopped in the U.S. box office, uh, but apparently was fairly popular overseas. I don't know about Japan specifically. I didn't have a chance to look into that, but... Is weird and creepy, and that cloud that blocked out the sky did look like flying monkeys. But perhaps my favorite enemy mobile suit in the whole episode is the Big Zam. Big eyelashes and incredibly weak feet. One stab to the foot and it is defeated. <laughs> I also love that it's just, like, it's basically just the Big Zam. They didn't really change the proportions. They didn't really SDify it. It's just the big Zam. Yep. That's great. It's the same big Zam it always was. It's all leg. <laughs> Only now it has humongous eyelashes. Uh, good, good stuff. So, you know, there's some good stuff in Gaiden. There's a lot to like there. Another effect that I liked, especially because I don't think I've ever seen it used in quite this way before, is the sort of window between worlds. Mm. We have the people in Lacroa watching the sky, and across this little patch of sky, a beam of light sort of traverses it uh, in a way that reminded me of nothing so much as a scanner. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and in that beam of light, they can sometimes catch a glimpse of what's happening in that other world. But I've never seen an effect quite like it. Do you happen to know if scanners are used in animation production? <laughs> <laughs> I don't know a ton about the nuts and bolts of how this works, but I know that there was a machine like a photocopier that was used in the process of creating the cells. So that might be what they're referencing here. Because with the earlier comments about all the different worlds in which the Gundam bloodline might live, there's this kind of self-aware meta thing going on where they're referencing the sort of universe, universes of SD Gundam and all the different realities, and to then have the view of this other SD universe be as though through this like process of making animation. <laughs> it's very meta. It's mm -hmm, the kind of thing mm -hmm. I enjoy. <laughs> Though it did strike me as funny that they can't really see what's going on. They're just watching this light in the sky, which gets faster as things get more intense. And then at the end, there's like a, you know, it twinkles beautifully, symbolizing the victory of the Gundam clan. They assume. They don't actually know. All of their heroes went away into the other world and didn't come back. And in the absence of some kind of clear and present danger or threat from Zeon and his forces, they just kind of don't know what happened over there. One very small correction, which is that the first time we see the scanner effect as the Gundams are being pulled into this other place, we actually see the other world in the bar of light. Mm -hmm. They don't show it again, I assume, because that would be a lot more work to animate <laughs> and it's easier to just animate this moving bar of light. Uh, but we do see through it in the first instance. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. 
Gotta love that the ending is basically, well, we don't know what happened, but the star went back up into the sky, just like the end of the prophecy, so everything must be okay. Yeah. Although, I mean, all the Gundam's gone, Char no longer a cat boy. It's hard not to see this as an unmitigated disaster for SD Gundam Gaiden. They lose the tablet again. It gets dropped in a river. Mm-hmm. Not a single Zucrello. Big Zam gone forever. Yeah, it's, it's bad. It's bad. And strangely, even the rulers of Munzo Kingdom seem perfectly happy <laughs> with this course of events. Well, why wouldn't they be? Their enemies over in Argus just lost all their most powerful soldiers. And I really thought that king was dead. Kanskan? Yeah. The creature that he melded with disappeared. But they pulled him out first. Did they? They did. Oh, they got okay. him and Fa out. I knew they got Fa out. I thought they maybe left him in there. No, they weren't going to leave him to die because they're heroes. And now it's going to come back to bite them. And now the research. Back in Gaiden episode one, Knight Gundam called upon the power of the three sacred artifacts, a sword, a jewel, and a shield. We immediately thought of the three sacred treasures of Japan's imperial family, a sword, a jewel, and a mirror. With the sword reappearing in this final episode and getting integrated into the revived Satan Gundam's tale, Nina decided to research its likely inspiration the sacred treasure sword of Japan, sometimes called Kusanagi. Part of the imperial regalia of Japan, the three sacred treasures are the sword Kusanagi no Tsurugi, the mirror Yata no Kagami, and the jewel Yasakani no Magatama, and they've come to represent the virtues of valor, wisdom, and benevolence. Part of enthronements since at least 690 CE, when they were presented to the Empress Jito, they also represent the allegedly divine lineage of Japan's imperial family. And for reasons spanning from they're very old to their power is such that they are dangerous, they are kept in special cases and shrouded when not in use, and even in use only seen by the emperor and certain high-ranking priests. There are no known drawings or photographs, much less material analysis, though their rough locations are assumed to be Atsuta Shrine in Nagoya for the sword, the three palace sanctuaries in the Kokyo or Imperial Palace in Tokyo for the jewel, and Ise Grand Shrine in Mie for the mirror. There is an Edo period record of actual inspection for the sword, but it contains very little detail beyond describing it as made of bronze. Some scholars believe the items were likely to be imports from Han Dynasty China and the Silla Kingdom in what is now Korea, rarities representing technologies or resources that were hard to come by, prestigious items from quote-unquote higher civilizations, and signs of diplomatic and trade relationships in the region. One of the names of the sword, Kusanagi, is often rendered as grass cutter, and there is a legend that explains that meaning, but some scholars contend that the legend to explain the name was written later. That in fact, the name comes from an old or middle Korean word for snake, for reasons that will become clear later. But their power is in their stories, many of which appear in the Kojiki and Nihon Shoki, the two earliest written records of Japanese history, though they're really more like compilations of myths and legends, genealogies, religious hymns and rituals, history and commentary. 
And from the beginning, these texts were intended to serve a political purpose, to, as Nellie Nauman wrote, verify and ensure the legitimacy of the ruling house from every possible angle. Beginning with episode one, SD Gundam Gaiden has seemed to draw influence and inspiration for its magical weapons from Japanese mythology and history. In more ways than I realized, it turns out. But beyond the fact that they exist, I don't know much about the regalia or the stories associated with them. Since it makes another appearance in this episode, this is my deep dive into the sword Kusanagi no Tsurugi. The gods were fed up. The unruly and troublesome Susano no Mikoto, son of Izanami and Izanagi, brother of Tsukuyomi and Amaterasu, had pushed them past the point of endurance, terrorizing Amaterasu until she hid herself in a cave and plunged the world into darkness. Izanami and the other gods fine and chastised Susano, ordering him to provide 1,000 tables of offerings, to pluck out all of his hair, and to leave the heavens. In exile on Earth, he follows the river He until he comes upon a family, an old man and an old woman, and a young woman between them, all of them weeping. The old man introduces himself as an earthly deity, the son of Oyamatsumi no Kami, and explains that their family once had eight daughters, but one after another they have been eaten by the great serpent Orochi. Now, only Kushi Nadahime remains. The serpent has eight heads, with eyes as red as winter cherries, and eight lashing tails. Its length extends over eight valleys and hills, and on its body grow mosses and trees. But Susano is willing to fight it if he can marry Kushi Nadahime, a condition her parents readily agree to once they learn who Susano is. To keep his promised bride safe, Susano transforms Kushi Nadahime into a comb and sticks her in his hair. He then orders the old couple to make a fence with eight gates, and at each gate to build a platform, and atop each platform to place a vat of eightfold refined liquor. Then they wait. As expected, Orochi comes, and just as Susano planned, the great monstrous serpent immediately sets its eight heads to drinking the eight vats of liquor. It falls into a drunken sleep, and Susano hacks it to pieces. As he chops and hacks at one of the tails, his own sword breaks, and he finds hidden in the serpent's flesh a sword. This was the sword Ame no Murakumo no Tsurugi, the sword of the gathering clouds of heaven, also known as Kusanagi no Tsurugi, or simply Kusanagi, the grass-cutting sword. Wielding it gives a single warrior the power to defeat an entire army. To apologize for his past behavior, Susano presents the extraordinary sword to Amaterasu as a gift. Or perhaps not. In another version of the tale, Susano and Kushi Nadahime have a son, Onamuchi, and Susano leaves to reside in the underworld, Nenokuni. In time, Onamuchi visits his father in the other world, and there must pass several tests. He then tries to escape with his wife, Suseribime, another child of Susano, and to take with him, quote, the sword of life, bow and arrows of life, and the heavenly speaking scyther. Although Susano notices them, he does not try to stop them, instead directing his son to use the relics to defeat his half-brothers and bring order to the mortal realm, becoming the god Okuninushi, ruler of the great land, and the god Utsushikunitama, spirit of the land of mortals. In the Nihongi, Onamuchi marries a Yamato princess, 
but only ever visits her at night. Wishing to see what he really looks like, she requests that he finally allow her to see him during the day and witness the, quote, majesty of his beauty. To quote Aston's translation of the Nihongi, Tomorrow morning I will enter your toilet case and stay there. I pray thee, be not alarmed at my form. Princess Yamato wondered secretly in her heart at this. Waiting until daybreak, she looked into her toilet case. There was a beautiful little snake, the length and thickness of the cord of a garment. The number eight represents the world in its totality. The eight daughters represent all of humanity. The eight-headed serpent threatens the whole of the human world. Snakes are associated with death and rebirth because of how they shed their skins as they grow. And in Chinese and Japanese folktales, snakes are commonly associated with, and even sometimes equated to, metals and money. Thus, the serpent Orochi and the sword Kusanagi could be considered one and the same. Although many of the popular contemporary depictions of Susano depict him as a chaotic or destructive force, he is also, in these stories and others, a life-giving force. And so he, and the serpent, and the sword, reflect the cycles of life, death, and renewal, chaos, and order in the natural world. Quick aside that I had never heard the story about the sword of life, bow and arrow of life, and heavenly speaking scyther, but clearly they inspired the bow and arrows of light and the harp of guidance in SD Gundam Gaiden. The scyther is a musical instrument, right? Which kind of resembles a harp? Yes. For the sword to become a symbol of the Japanese imperial family's divine lineage requires the version of the story where Susano gives Kusanagi to his sister, Amaterasu. In time, the central land of the reed plains was pacified, and that being the case, Amaterasu prepared to send her son to rule over the land. Yet her son wished for his son, Ninigi no Mikoto, to be sent in his stead. She gave to her grandchild the three treasures, appointed his attendants, and sent him to the mortal realm with this command. Quote, this reed plain land is the region which my descendants shall be lords of. Do thou, my august grandchild, proceed thither and govern it. Go, and may prosperity attend thy dynasty, and may it, like heaven and earth, endure forever. And so, the three treasures are not mere representations of imperial authority, but representations of a blood connection to the gods. Not just chosen by the gods, but related to them. According to legend, these treasures were passed down through the generations, to Ninigi no Mikoto's great-grandson, the first emperor Jimu, and from him, on and on, through the direct line of lineage to the present-day emperor. Historians stress that we have no evidence that Jimu was a real, rather than legendary, figure, although stories about him may reflect real events. But wait! Kusanagi's story doesn't end there, as a precious family heirloom carefully guarded and passed down through the centuries. Legendary prince Yamato Takeru, younger son of the emperor Keiko, was sent to subdue eastern Japan. In some stories, he is sent because he is a great warrior. In others, Yamato Takeru kills his elder brother over a small slight, and the emperor becomes afraid of his younger son's temper and brutality sending him on increasingly dangerous missions farther and farther from home to keep him away from court and perhaps intending that his son should die. In those tales where Yamato Takeru is on good terms with his father, the emperor, it is his father who entrusts Kusanagi to him. 
In other tales, the prince breaks his journey eastward at Ise Shrine, where his aunt is a cult maiden. He knows he is being sent to his death, and his aunt takes pity on him, taking the sword from its hiding place within the shrine and giving it to him. When he reaches the lands he's been sent to subdue, he is taken on a hunting expedition that is soon revealed to be a trap. A rival, a treacherous warlord, a rebellious tribe. Who set the trap changes with the telling, but what happens next does not. The attackers set fire to the grassland, leaving Yamato Takaru with no way to escape the fast-moving flames. Instead, he cuts down the flaming grasses, and seeing that the sword has granted him magical power over the wind, sends the fire back toward his enemies. Eventually, he falls, in battle or from illness, after leaving Kusanagi with his wife. It was she, or one of her family, who took the sword to its supposed current location, Atsuta Shrine. This is the story, the folk etymology, for the name Kusanagi meaning grass cutter. And I have to assume this is why Link, in some of the Legend of Zelda video games, has that sweeping grass cutting attack. In the 7th century CE, during the reign of Emperor Tenshi, the Buddhist priest Dogyo is said to have stolen the sword, attempting to take it by ship to the kingdom of Silla. Yet by luck, by divine intervention of the god of the sea, or by the sword's curse, the wind and the rain and tumultuous seas so disoriented Dogyo that he was forced to turn back, or to hurl the sword into the ocean, only for it to wash up back on the shores of Japan. Eighteen years after the attempted theft, Emperor Temu was very ill, and the cause was determined by divination to be a curse from the sword Kusanagi itself. So the sword was taken from the imperial palace to the shrine at Atsuta. Wait, I hear you thinking, your thoughts are loud. Wasn't the sword already in Atsuta? As a magic eight ball would say, the signs are mixed. And although the how and why may change, the sources are clear that the sword was moved. Kusanagi's next appearance that I could find is at the end of the Genpei War, 1185 CE, as recounted in the tale of the Heike, which Tom covered in Season 3. At the Battle of Danoura in the Kanmon Straits, the forces of the Genji overwhelmed those of the Heike, and it was soon clear that the Heike had lost. Lady Ni, a Buddhist nun and grandmother of the seven-year-old Emperor Antoku, tucked the sacred jewel into her robes, thrust the treasured sword through her sash, and declared, I may be a woman, but I will not let the enemy take me. No, your majesty, I shall accompany you. The boy emperor did not yet understand and asked where his grandmother was taking him. This land of ours, a few millet grains scattered in remote seas, is not a nice place. I am taking you now to a much happier one, the pure land of bliss. She instructed him to bid farewell to Ise Shrine in the east, and facing west to call the name of the Amida Buddha. Taking the boy in her arms, she stepped to the railing of the ship. Down there, far beneath the waves, another capital awaits us. And she jumped, plunging them both into the sea. By taking the sword and jewel with her, she hoped to deny them and their power, both symbolic and magical, to their enemies. In some tellings, the Heike lost precisely because Antoku was too young to wield the sword, and so was unable to call upon its power to defend his rule and defeat the rival Genji. Another Heike noblewoman attempted to throw herself into the sea along with the chest containing the sacred mirror, but was prevented. 
Genji's soldiers shot arrows that pinned her skirts to the deck of the ship. Not knowing its contents, the soldiers opened the chest and instantly went blind, blood pouring from their noses, before their comrades shut it tightly again. The jewel was found, its chest floating in the water, or it was recovered by divers, and Jewel and Mirror both returned to the capital. Numerous medieval texts recount the loss of the sword, and, quote, variously contended that a replica was forged afterwards, or that the lost sword itself was a replica, with the original safely stored at Atsuta, or that the original sword was returned to land by supernatural forces, that the sword washed up on shore or was recovered by priests. In the tale of the Heike, the spirit sword kept at Atsuta is not Kusanagi, but Amano Hayakiri. Regarding the loss of Kusanagi, it recounts one learned doctor's theory, that the great serpent Orochi so desired the return of the spirit sword that, quote, in token of his eight heads and tails, he took the form of the 80th human sovereign, and in the person of an emperor in his eighth year, took it back and dove with it to the bottom of the sea. The sword was now the dragon god's prize. Naturally, no one could expect to see it again in the human realm. Yet in one final tale, taking place many years later, the emperor put into power by the Genpei War, Emperor Go Shirakawa, saw that Japan was in great danger and called for the sword to be brought from its temple to the imperial palace, but the sword could not be found. An old woman appeared to him in a dream and told him that Kusanagi was now held by the king of the sea, and when he woke, the emperor ordered that divers be sent to the Kanmon Straits, to the area of the battle, to search. Two such divers, a mother and daughter named Omiyatsu and Wakamatsu, searched the depths and found a dark cave, leading to a jeweled passage to a secret world, a great city with gold walls and towering spires. They had found the sea god's palace, and at length they were taken to speak to a great serpent that held the sword in its mouth, and a young boy asleep in its coils. The serpent spoke, telling them that the sword originally belonged to the king of the sea, but was stolen by a dragon prince, who then lost it to a Japanese hero. Generations later, a sea dragon took the shape of a woman and married a Japanese emperor. This was Lady Ni, Emperor Antoku's grandmother, who went on to return herself and the sword to the sea. The divers recounted the whole of what they had seen and heard to the emperor, who also consulted with a powerful magician. This magician was able to cast a spell to retrieve the sword, so that Goshirakawa could use its power to defend Japan, after which it was returned to its place at Atsuta Shrine. Although the source I found for this story didn't say so, it seems that the dragon prince who stole the sword was Orochi. The Japanese hero who took it from him was Susano. The old woman who appeared in the emperor's dream might have been Lady Ni, and the young boy asleep in the coils of the serpent, the former emperor Antoku. That is the last real tale about the sword Kusanagi that I could find. Ever since, it has been secreted away. If we're feeling cynical, to preserve its mystique. But the superstitions remain. Quote, there is perhaps good reason for the Kusanagi to be kept away from human sight. Remember that brief inspection from the Edo period? The priest who saw the sword and wrote the very minimal description of it must have met an untimely end because the sword's curse is credited with his death. 
Next time on episode 6.11, Tour de Gundam, we research and discuss SD Gundam Mark IV, parts 1 and 2. And I did come here to make friends. Fabulous prizes. Oh, that's just sad. Girls, girls, girls. Fairweather friends. A growing problem. Oh, that is also sad. Goof, you pervert! Big, beautiful mobile suit. Dinobots. And I wish my late wife could have seen this. You're what now? This served no purpose, but nevertheless. Mobile Suit Breakdown is written, recorded, and produced by us, Nina and Tom, in scenic New York City, within the ancestral and unceded land of the Lenape people, and made possible by listeners like you. The opening track is Wasp by Misha Dioxin. The closing music is A Long Way Home by Spinning Ratio. The recap music is Olivia by Hyson. You can find links to the sources for our research, the music used in the episode, additional information about the Lenape people, and more in the show notes and on our website, GundamPodcast.com. You can get in touch with us on Twitter or Instagram at GundamPodcast, or by email to GundamPodcast at gmail.com. And thank you for listening. We have been trying to reach you concerning your mobile suit's extended warranty. You should have received a notice in the mail about your mobile suit's extended warranty eligibility. Since we have not gotten a response, we're giving you a final courtesy call before we close out your file. If you allow your mobile suit's warranty to expire, you may be exposed to a huge repair bill or even litigation if your mobile suit is stolen by a good foolish space team. Press 2 to speak to one of our warranty specialists now. This week's giant robot call was suggested by Engelnull in the MSB Discord. Thanks, Engelnull. We might not have time for this. Um, I heard something a moment ago. Keeping your ear out for it. All right. <clears throat> Gentle <clears throat> listeners, we are once again beset by construction. We are. What a treat. What a joy. Ame no muraka. Ame no. It's going to be hard to say. Murakumo. Murakumo. I wish my late wife could have seen this. You who? Do what now? It's a pretty good one. <laughs> thank you. Well, I mean, thank Thanks, you. <laughs> I'm saying thank you on behalf of Engelnull. Yeah. Dun, 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 dun. <laughs> it's a good ending, right? It is. It is. <laughs> I think, I, I'm, this is a vague memory. But I think that mother-daughter diving pair, mm -hmm. when you said their names, I was like, those sound kind of familiar. I think they might be in Final Fantasy XIV, <laughs> um, in the like in the section where there's the underground, the underwater village. Village. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think there's a mother-daughter diver pair that's, that's that's referenced there. I mean, that um, 
section of FF14 is heavily influenced by Japanese mythology, yep. so. Yeah, I mean, that's the same section that has the box that turns you into an old person. And you fight Susano. <laughs> Um, I would combine with... A big truck and force all the other big trucks off of our streets. I would combine with a bucket. So I'd always <laughs> have a bucket. <laughs> I'm sure I'll come up with, with, with something good. Um... Oh, shoot. I wish I had found a way to fit this in earlier. <laughs> The original Superior Gundam, on which the Knight Superior Dragon is based, has like big old spikes coming out of its knees. They're not actually spikes, but they look like spikes. Because the SD Gundams don't have knees, they're coming out of its feet, which I thought was funny. Um, <clears throat> sorry, <clears throat> lunch there. They assume, right? Yeah, like, you have to do they assume again because I cleared my throat. Sorry. Cut that. Okay. My brain is just bad. <laughs> my brain is bad. Ignore it. <laughs>